Well, I want to begin with a word of thanks to Nick and for the, to the Knox community for your kind invitation to join you in your worship this morning. We are grateful for the witness of Knox on the university campus and for the way that you've nurtured students from Wycliffe College and for the events that you have partnered with us in hosting. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, you had uh, the wedding of one of our students, and uh, in 2019, uh, we came together to uh, have an event with Alistair McGrath. I want to add that things are going very well at the college despite the lockdown, and that God has blessed us with an extraordinary faculty and dedicated staff and bright and eager young students. We look forward to our Zoom gathering of uh, people who are graduating, a Zoom graduation of 43 in just over a week's time, and our enrollment targets for the coming autumn are looking healthy. So God has been good, and we're poised for growth again, even as we pray for a rapid end to the pandemic, which would make a full return to church and school possible. I'm particularly glad to participate in your series of sermons called Good News for the Whole World. For after all, Christians care for the world. I know that Knox has a strong reputation for its multicultural witness. And yet, we affirm the reality that within every human heart are the seeds of prejudice and discrimination. Indeed, one of the most potent and destructive implements of our punitive arsenal is that of ostracism. And we know this from a very young age. When our daughter was five years old, Ellen, she once complained that she was being left out from her sister's relationships. When Claire and Alexandra play, she lamented, I feel outcluded. Well, this morning in our gospel reading, we have a compelling picture of Jesus as the embodiment of good news for the whole world. And what is striking about this story is the way that his whole world included those whom society would prefer to shun. So let me begin by asking, would you be inclined to have Jesus round to your place as a dinner guest? I don't think that there's any question that he would accept an invitation. After all, as we've already indicated, he wasn't very picky about who he hung out with. St. Luke tells us that he went to parties organized by tax collectors and religious folk alike. And this is one of the surprising things about Jesus. He had this reputation as a devout and holy man and was something of a celebrity in Galilee. But he was always turning up in unexpected places. You could never predict who he would mix with. And so the story goes that Jesus got invited to the house of a man called Simon, Now, Simon was attached to a Jewish Jewish sect known as the Pharisees. It's a little bit like the Christian church, you know, with its denominations of Anglicans and Baptists and Uniteds and Pentecostals and whatnot. Having been established at the time of a major Jewish revolt in 168 BC, Phariseeism was a popular and influential lay movement among the Jewish common people of Jesus' day. Their name means either separated ones or holy ones, and this is because they were strict in their observance of the rituals legislated in the Old Testament. Following the tradition of the elders, they were scrupulous in avoiding contact with non-Jews and sinners. 
Now, I imagine people became Pharisees for various reasons. For some, they believed that if they could just convince all of Judaism to follow the Jewish law more closely, then God might reward their piety by sending the Messiah to liberate them from the rule of the detestable Romans. For others, however, they may simply have wanted to belong to the most popular branch of Judaism. There is, after all, both advantage and pride in being part of the largest denomination. Of course, I know that we tend to use the term Pharisee in a pejorative way. It's a synonym for hypocrisy or a holier-than-thou attitude. But this isn't entirely fair. Simon, I think, exemplified what was best about Pharisaism. He was a good and devout member of his congregation, and his generosity at home likely indicates that he made a favorable impression on the collection plate when it passed by on Saturday. He seemed to have been a popular fellow with his Pharisees, and I think it's right for us to admire him, maybe even feel some sense of identification with him. He might even have been an elder in his church. We're not told. How good was Simon? Well, I take it as a mark of his sincerity and benevolence that Simon invited Jesus to a dinner party. It may have involved some risk on his part, as Jesus had begun to establish a bit of a controversial reputation in that part of the country. Nevertheless, his Pharisaic friends had many questions about this Galilean celebrity, and a dinner party might be just the place for a friendly exchange and a bit of entertainment. I think we may be certain that Simon played the conscientious host, as hospitality is a highly valued uh, feature of Oriental culture. He took care that the conversation flowed easily and that his visitors enjoyed a relaxed and savory meal. But then suddenly, an uninvited guest shows up at the dinner, and the appearance of this interloper threatens to spoil the party and disgrace the host. For the intruder is none other than a woman in the city who was a sinner, as St. Luke delicately puts it. Expressed in other words, she was a prostitute, and nothing in the disaster plans for dinner quite anticipated a situation like this. But the woman's purpose in coming to the dinner was not to be disruptive. In fact, she pays no attention to Simon or to any of the other guests. Rather, in a state of what appeared to be great distress, she went straight to Jesus and began to bathe his feet with a sweet unguent. The balm was called myrrh, a rare and expensive ointment drawn from tree rosin, and its spicy odor would have filled the room. In St. Luke's Gospel, myrrh once again is mentioned at the end of the narrative in association with the spices that were used for Jesus' burial. We may, in fact, be given a premonition in this story of Jesus' impending death. The woman was not a was not aware of the prophetic nature of her act, however. Something else, something hidden in the encounter, moved her deeply, and the tender act of anointing was impeded by the tears which fell from her face onto his feet, and so she hastily wiped them away with her hair. Now, understandably, Simon was horrified. 
but he resisted whatever temptation he may have felt to intervene and cast the pathetic woman out. Instead, in his revulsion, his thoughts went to Jesus. If this man were really a prophet, he contemplated, he should know who this woman is who is touching him and what a bad character she is. In the end, of course, Simon learned that Jesus indeed was a prophet, since Jesus not only knew who the woman was, but he also knew what was in Simon's heart. Now, in preparing this sermon, I gave some thought to titling it Christ the Friend of Sinners. But then it dawned on me that we might conclude too quickly just who this sinner is. We would perhaps naturally assume that this poor, wretched woman was the sinner, just as the titles in our new revised Standard Bibles do. The New International Version calls this passage, Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. And this is actually the troubling thought that was running through Simon's mind. But is the sinner really the woman? I'm not so convinced we've really heard the evangelist's account in its fullness, if that's what we make of the passage. For insofar as we draw this conclusion, we ensure that the gospel story remains a safe distance from us. Oh, we may be drawn into the story's poignancy, and we may be impressed by Jesus' insight and compassion, but we ourselves remain unchanged. Why? Because in reading it in this way, we've managed to maintain our reputations. That's why. We are respectable folk. We know our place in the community, and we do our part. We are polite. We avoid transgressing social boundaries. We're good, perhaps in the same way that Simon was good. But the real sinner of the story is not the woman. The real sinner is Simon. And there are a couple of indications of this in the text. The first is that my proposed title, Christ the Friend of Sinners, is not actually taken from this story, but from verse 34, before our story begins. There, these are the words that are used which the Pharisees claimed in in deriding Jesus. Jesus rehearses back to them what they've said to him. You say the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But now, who does Jesus keep company with for an evening of eating and drinking. It is Simon. What is more, the parable Jesus tells in our story about the two debtors was designed to bring self-awareness to Simon, not to the woman. And what was the parable about? Well, the parable was about two debtors. And in the implication that they represented both the woman and Simon, the answer is that they were two sinners. So you can see why I'm so anxious that we should identify with poor Simon and not the woman. It's because most of us do not relate well with the gluttonous or the alcoholics or the greedy or the riffraff of society. In fact, when we hear that Christ is a friend of sinners, we are tempted to think rather smugly, well, that's good, because he must know that sinners of that caliber do not have a lot of friends. However, The peril of this reasoning 
is that because we do not readily include ourselves in the category of sinners, we stand to lose out on the most significant relationship of our lives. And it should be evident that if this is the message of the story, maybe something has gone wrong with our definition of sin. What is sin? How would you define it? It was Malcolm Muggridge who helped me to get a better perspective on this subject. My first introduction to Muggridge was when I was a university student in the States. And late one evening, I was in need of distraction and turned on the television. And I happened on a talk show where the presenter was a particularly obnoxious and aggressive personality. He was interviewing a venerable old fellow who was full of charm and wit. And this fellow, who turned out to be Malcolm Muggridge, impressed me by the way he remained unflapped by the presenter's abrupt and occasionally belligerent questions. It was when Malcolm Muggridge mentioned the word sin that the presenter became most agitated. He threw up his hands and said, You Christians are always talking about sin. Isn't sin a guilt trip you impose on others by universalizing your standards? I mean, how can you define sin anyway? What what is a sin for you may not be a sin for me. And with a twinkle in his eye, Malcolm Muggridge quietly replied, Sin is choosing the lower when the higher is available. I think the presenter was stunned, for there was an awkward silence before he announced that the broadcast would break for a commercial. Sin is choosing the lower when the higher is available. It's a good definition of sin, don't you think? It puts the woman and the Pharisee on equal footing. For however else you may evaluate their lives, they both chose the lower when the higher was available. Sure, their choices in life were doubtless complicated by many factors, and it is unfortunate that the woman made choices which were deemed specially scandalous in her society. But they were both sinners. The difference between them now was not the nature of the choices that they had made, but it was what they had done about their sinfulness. I regret that we're not told how Simon responded to Jesus' parable. It's conceivable that he clutched to the false security provided by a society bent on grading sin, a society which said that sexual impropriety was much worse than concede or pride. And this would have been tragic, because then he would not have escaped the trap, a trap which many of us know too well, of always having to assure ourselves that we are not as bad as the person next to us. And what ultimate comfort can be derived from that? Or, having been confronted with the reality of his indebtedness, Simon may have have sought to shift the blame, such as the man and the woman did in the Garden of Eden. You remember, the woman made me do it. The serpent made me do it. It's like the story of the young schoolboy who came home from school at the end of term with a mark showing that he was not performing to a passing standard. And the lad solemnly handed the report card to his father. After his father had poured over the bad news, his son said, Dad, what do you think it is? Is it, is it my heredity or my environment? Simon might have said, Look, 
I'm only being a conscientious host. I didn't make up society's rules. Is it wrong to want my guest's greatest comfort? But for Simon, this would be equally as tragic because blaming can be a denial, a denial of the dignity and responsibility we all share as human beings created in the image of God. No, my friends, our thoughts and consequences have, actions have consequences. And it actually took the heart-wrenching actions of this broken woman to show Simon that she had actually been more hospitable than he had by washing Jesus' feet. Jesus himself pointed this out. Simon had not greeted him with a kiss of fellowship, and yet she had not stopped kissing his feet. No, Luke does not tell us how Simon responded, and perhaps this is deliberate. Perhaps he intends us to answer this question for ourselves. You are Simon, he would seem to say. What do you intend to do about your problem of self-centeredness, your erring choices about your problem of sin? Well, it would seem that the woman provides for us an example of the appropriate response. For she had come to the point in her life where she had to admit her sinfulness, to acknowledge that her choices had brought harm to others and shame to herself. And it was only when she faced up to this reality about herself that she knew forgiveness and liberation. And here there is one other wondrous thing to note. If the woman's tears were tears of remorse, then they were also tears of deep happiness and gratitude because they were the tears of the forgiven. For Jesus said that whoever is forgiven much loves much. This woman is a testimony that a forgiven life is a life of release, a life of freedom in the service of love. Oh, that we might all know the forgiven life I wonder this morning if you know this forgiveness for yourselves. If not, you may be wondering, where does this forgiveness come from and how can it be mine? Here we enter into the greatest mystery of the Christian faith. One way of understanding it, in fact, might be to return to our definition of sin. You remember how we said that sin is choosing the lower when the higher is available? Well, in an ironic way, it is also a formula for forgiveness. For when it is inverted, it is a fitting description of the redeeming work of Christ, who in his great love for us chose mortality when the immunity of heaven was available to him. Jesus, in other words, chose the lower when the higher was available so that you and I might find in him our forgiveness and our joy. Friendship with Jesus Christ is, in the end, an outworking of our great worth in his eyes. How great is our worth? In the words of Archbishop William Temple, my worth is what I am worth to God, and that is a marvelous great deal for Christ died for me. And so now Jesus says to us, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. My friends, I wish you all God's peace. Amen.